everybody. I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. Listeners, Bree, you look like you're gonna get, like start laughing again here soon. That was kind of a crazy <laughs> grin that you had going there. <laughs> yeah, I just like calmed down from a laughing streak from our pre-banter conversation, so we'll see how far I can make it. <laughs> oh, thank God it's the weekend. <laughs> yes, yes, thank God it's the weekend. Yes, yes. Well. I gained access to Disney Plus, which I am going to be using later this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you to my bestie that hooked me up there, because my God, there are some movies on there that I haven't seen in years. I watched Dinosaur last night, and I don't know if anyone remembers that movie from like 1994-ish, I think. Is that the one with the dinosaurs that like... What was it? It was like, aren't they breaking out from a circus or something and they're like busting through the city? Am I thinking of the right movie or am I I think you're thinking of Jurassic Park Lost World. No, I've never seen the Jurassic Park, so it's not Jurassic Park, so I'm thinking of an animated movie. Oh, oh, uh, oh god, I can't remember what it is, but it's like Dinosaurs in New York City or something like that. Um, no, this one actually came out in 2000, so I was a couple of years off. Oh, okay. No, this okay. was, like, the CGI animated one that had, like, the monkeys and stuff, and, like... Oh. <laughs> them migrating to the, uh, the mating grounds, which... <laughs> when watching this, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of, a lot of adult content here. <laughs> Like, minus, like, there's no, like, sexual action on the screen, of course, but it's, like, there's a lot of inferring of what's going on and that, like, side wink. I'm like, I I think I know what you're talking about, yeah. I still like the movie, but I'm like, okay, now I know why why every adult that watched this with me was either oddly quiet or laughing their ass off because obviously everything's going over like my 10 year old brain, like dinosaurs Uh, are on the TV. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. That's the only problem with revisiting movies from your childhood is now as a grown ass adult, you see all the like hidden dirty jokes mm-hmm. in the children movies to make them bearable for the adults to watch. So <laughs> kind of ruins your childhood in some situations. A little bit. A little bit. I'm not going to lie. That and like kid me like seeing movies that I'm like, oh my God, these were great movies. Like I remember this as a kid. I love this movie. And then like rewatching it, like for example, Little Mermaid 2. I used to love that movie. I rewatched it and I'm like, <laughs> Why are all the characters in almost any scene just floating up into the scene? It was really weird. It was like a panning of a PowerPoint. I'm like, what is happening here? I'm like, what is this? I'm like, this movie used to be great. <laughs> that, or there's just like no background to things at certain points. I'm like, the sea is not that empty, is it? 
sitting over here yelling at my TV like, I'm young. What's going on? (laughs) Oh, that's probably what I'll watch tonight. I'll watch Jafar's Return or like Aladdin and the King of Thieves. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just ruin more of my childhood favorites. (laughs) You know, you know. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to watch after this. Probably break out some some fun anime or maybe just read my book and chill out or something, but find something. Something yeah. good. Some, something to do. And I suggest that if you guys are listening to this during your morning commute or if you're an evening podcast listener like me while I'm cleaning the house or doing dishes in the afternoon, please take a moment and check yourself make sure that you're in a good headspace um secondarily have something to do afterwards because my god although we don't get like super into it today with this case make sure that you do some self-care and just do self-care on a regular basis too because it's important oh yeah for sure self-care is super important all the time mm-hmm. But yeah, we do have a multi-parter case coming up starting today. So be prepared, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you to my mom, who's been, I won't say nagging, because I feel like I'm going to get swatted upside the head if I say that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Pestering isn't better. My mom has been egging me on to do this one for a couple months now. Like, I want to say she originally started pushing for this one when I said that Rhi and I were going to start a podcast 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 a podcast we're doing a podcast (laughs) (laughs) we were doing a podcast she really pushed me to do this one and this is a case that I absolutely find fascinating too and I'm not put out by doing the research but I am definitely a little on edge so with that being said We're going to switch into our trigger warnings, and we'll see you here in just a moment. While we understand that some individuals listen for the entertainment aspect of true crime, it's important to remember that these are real people with families and friends who may still be suffering from their loss. These stories are not meant to open old wounds or cause further emotional damage to those involved. We remind you to please be respectful, do not dox, or contact those involved with cases. While paranormal occurrences and urban legends may be sources of tourism, please be considerate if you visit one of these locations. Do not engage in trespassing and be sure to ask for permission if you plan on recording. Be aware of your surroundings and travel safely. The cases discussed in this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. episode, we will be discussing cases involving more than one of the following. Children, sexual assault, domestic violence, and suicide. As always, listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know has a child who has been victimized, please call the proper authorities and look at missingkids.org or call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's hotline at 800-843-5600. Seven, eight, for more helpful resources. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual assault, 
please reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673. If you or someone you know has been a victim of domestic violence, please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. And if you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. Now, back to the show. All right. Welcome back. I don't think I have any vocab lessons with Katie for you guys this week, unfortunately. But I do have one doozy of a case. So if you're ready, and like I said previously, if you're not in the right mindset, we're not going to get too far into a lot of things going on today. But we are going to be digging into some stuff that can make people uncomfortable. If you're not in the right mindset, like I said, take a moment evaluate, move on to something else, or come back to this later. But we're going to get started. So, Ree, are you ready? (laughs) As ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) So, on February 1st of 2012, on the side of a four-laned road, Tudor Road to be exact, in Anchorage, Alaska, stood a small coffee kiosk named Common Grounds. Its blue paint and brown trim broke the silence of the white snowdrifts around it. On this night, Samantha Cohing had been working alone, closing up the store like any other barista would after a long shift and beginning her way for basically heading home. When she disappeared without a trace. On February 2nd, the first of the baristas arrived to begin her opening shift at the small five-by-nine-foot-wide kiosk when she felt something was off. Upon entering, she noticed that the store had been left in a disheveled mess. Napkins were strewn about, and nothing appeared to be fully cleaned. She also realized that the previous day's profit had been taken from the register. Knowing this to not be the way that Samantha regularly closed, or anything that Samantha would have regularly done, noting even how meticulous she was at cleaning for a barista and making sure that it was ready for the opening staff, this barista decided to contact authorities and report her missing. What Anchorage Police Department discovered upon arriving at the scene and starting to canvas the area and get more information about Samantha was that she was a popular high school girl and sometimes would cut class and maybe had a history with illicit drugs. Samantha also didn't seem to belong to any type of clique at the school. She was nice and got along with just about everybody. This left investigators with little to no leads regarding her disappearance. This caused detectives to begin theorizing about what might have occurred the night before. Had Samantha left of her own volition or was she possibly kidnapped? With Samantha being the age of 18 years old, lack of evidence at the scene, a rocky relationship with her boyfriend, and an unpressed panic button in the kiosk's security system, 
It made investigators shift to the ladder that she'd probably left willingly. Then again, she had messaged her father earlier that evening asking him to stop by the kiosk with dinner. Why would she do that if she planned on running away? Detective Monique Dahl was assigned to this case. It was her first day working on homicide. Although Dahl did have experience in the field and was a third generation police officer. Dahl initially thought the same as the other investigators on the scene. A simple teenager who's mad at her boyfriend runs away. Unfortunately, this bias is what surrounds a lot of Anchorage police departments as well as other police departments throughout the United States, leading for the reason to be adding runaways to the less than dead theory. FBI Special Agent Stephen Payne heard about the case from a friend at the police department in Anchorage and noted that even though Anchorage was a big city in Alaska, it runs like a small town. Word of mouth and news travels very quickly. Concerned about the way that this case may be dismissed, Payne offered his aid to Dahl on the investigation, but Dahl did decline. Dahl later contacted him that evening, just before 8 p.m., wanting him to view the surveillance video from the kiosk. Now, Re, I did send you a couple of links in our chat. The first one is mm -hmm. a link to the coffee kiosk. It lets you see kind of like what it looks like and gives a visual. These will also be linked in our reference page. So if you guys want to look at these at the same time, please not while you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please don't. Don't stop driving. Don't well, stop I driving mean, to look at the parking lot. But yeah, don't don't be looking at your phone and driving. We do not condone that behavior at all. No, no. Um, if you're in a safe area and you want to look at this with us, please go check out our reference page. I will make sure to put these in the show notes as well. But if you see, you can see like the coffee kiosk in that first one. And then the second one that I have is a link to a YouTube video from Anchorage Daily News of the security surveillance footage. It's so. a really cute little coffee kiosk. I know, isn't it? It's adorable. It reminds me of like <laughs> something like you would see in a Santa Claus movie. Like it's up at the North Pole or something. <laughs> it's yeah, really cute. Yeah, it does kind of look like something you'd see in a Santa Claus movie. Yeah, I really like it. I'm like, dang, that looks like the kind of little coffee kiosk I would go get coffee at. Right. <laughs> Which I don't know how I feel about that because this is not an episode I'd want to picture myself in. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And if you want to watch this video with us, um, go ahead and pause here. We're going to pause. I'm going to have Re watch this video with me so she can kind of get an idea of what's going on. So we'll be back in just a moment. Hope to see you here. <laughs> All right, we're back in. Re initial thoughts just off of seeing a little bit of that. Fuck. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's some triggering shit. I know for both of us with PTSD, that's some triggering shit right there. Uh, to be fair, I will tell you listeners, Katie gave me a little bit of a heads up partway through the video before something really disturbing happened, so I'd have a little bit of a, a trigger warning there because she knew it would set me off, but oh my god. I told Katie just that, like, that's not what I think it is, right? That's not what I think it is. That can't be what I think it is. <laughs> Cause I was just sitting here like that cannot be what I think it is and I was like trying to like come up with excuses and reasons because I was like it's just so disturbing I don't like it I don't like it at all um 
But yeah, and it surprised me how long it went on for, which I don't know, I guess if you're this calculating criminal, I, well, I guess it depends on the person, you, you know, we off, off uh, the mic, you were just saying, you know, some people are antsy and some people aren't when it t comes to criminals. Of course, everybody's got different personalities, but this guy just seems so like collected and cool, like he just knows what he wants and what he's doing. I, he just didn't seem antsy. It wasn't like a rush job. It seemed very calm and like strategic almost. And that really bothered me that it was not antsy and rushed. It seemed very much like content with just, you know, waiting for the right moment. Like, like you would imagine, I hate to say this, but it's true, but like a predator, if you think about animals, like how a predator will just wait for the right moment to fucking pounce. Like that's what it felt like. And it was extremely disturbing. I don't like it. <laughs> so. <gasps> blah. <laughs> my sentiments exactly on that. Um, for our listeners that weren't able to view the video, just to give you like kind of like a painted picture of what's going on here. There are one through four channels available to see on the surveillance video. Channel one is the first up left corner channel, and it shows a angle view towards what I presume to be the front of the trailer and the hot bar. Now, hot bar means your espresso bar or anywhere that any of your hot drinks are going to be made. Just to the right behind Samantha is the cash register, and to her left is what I presume to be the cold bar, which is where your frappuccinos are made or any of your blended drinks. Then... To the left, like right up next to the hot bar, like up towards the front, is the syrup stand. And that's basically all you can really see in the first camera. And then like to the opposite side of that, there is a window, but it's kind of hard to see. Channel two is basically the inverted view of channel one, with the hot bar being just below it. And to the left is a service window and a small walkway you can see just down the middle of those two sections between the cash register and cold bar and at the end of that is an exit door on channel three this one's stationed outside of the service window and it's aimed towards where i presume you would see somebody's face as they drive up in a car or a vehicle you can also see a parking lot to the left of the kiosk and then one possibly across the street. You can also see a main street where there's cars going back and forth too, just in the upper right corner. On channel four, that's also outside. This one is at the back door of the kiosk. So that exit door from channel two, it's right outside that one. There's a couple of trash cans to the left and a possible snow drift behind those. Now, it's important for me to mention that in this video, it's very grainy due to the, the generation of camera, because we all know in the early 2000s, 2010s, <laughs> we didn't have the best footage. <laughs> um, so the video quality is very grainy, and the lights outside mixed with the snow is causing some high exposure to happen. So it's making things seem almost blinding white to where you can't really see too much of like distinct features in addition to it being grainy. So just as a note. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. 
Yeah, that was another thing I mentioned to Katie as we were doing the as we were watching the video and she was getting my live reactions is I was just like, I hate how terrible this quality of video footage is. <laughs> Cause I'm not a criminal justice person and it's already frustrating to me to watch this and be like, I can I can't make out really the features of the person and it's hard to even see like once the lights were out, like what was going on because the video footage was so bad. <laughs> So it's just like, how do you solve crimes with these? Like, this sucks. <laughs> it's rough. And like oh. I was saying, there are very, very detail-oriented specialists in forensic science fields that focus on digital footprints. So that includes anything that ties to digital transactions, phones, credit cards, computers, video cameras. They specialize in looking at these types of things. And it's not like CSI where you can like basically enhance a video, but there are certain tricks that you can do to get it a little bit less of a hassle to look at. But unfortunately, I don't have those tools at my disposal. So <laughs> nor do I know how to use them if I did. Um, but looking at the surveillance video, I really wanted to break down with an unbiased opinion because I've heard the story before. I might have watched this in the past, but it's been long enough. I've forgotten a lot of key aspects. And I literally told Ree, I sat here and I watched this 10 times. And at one point I went through each of the sections and just watched them specifically. Now, the book that I do use for most of my information on this case is American Predator by Maureen Callahan. It has a lot of really good information and I'm using a lot of it as my resource because it's absolutely beautifully written and she goes deeply into detail regarding what's going on in these types of videos as this case progresses. So although I didn't like copy word for word, there's a lot of correlations between this podcast episode and that book and then future episodes coming out for it this case. So if you're interested, make sure to go check out that book, but we're going to start with the video now. So in the video, it's just before 8 p.m. Samantha is inside and appears to be cleaning stations and prepping to shut down for the night as her shift ends at 8 p.m. At around 13 seconds, you can see somebody walking away from the parking lot at the top middle of channel three towards the kiosk. This person then walks off the right of the screen around 29 seconds, and I presume that he's going around the building. At 39 seconds, Samantha seems to be called to the window or notices somebody at the window. She seems relaxed and goes about making this individual's order, possibly making small talk as she does. At a minute and 58 seconds, after she hands the drink off to the customer, Samantha quickly stands back with her hands up. And you can barely see in this video, but if you look in like the like lower half of channel twos where you can actually see that window, this individual is pointing a gun at her. Very quickly, Samantha proceeds to turn off the lights just behind her. Then she walks to the back of the shop and turns off the rest of the light set. While she's back there, this man peeks in and watches her through the window. Now, you can kind of make out the shape of a hand at this point, reaching through the window and touching the counter with the cash register on it in channel two. However, due to the quality of the video, this might just be my eyes playing tricks on me, but if that is a hand, it's unclear if the individual is using it as support as he leans through 
or if he grabs something leaning through that window. Samantha then proceeds back to the window with her hands still up, and the two appear to have a conversation for a moment. She then walks to the back of the store again, appearing to sit something down below the window when she comes back, possibly a bag or something else. At the three minute 50 mark, Samantha goes to the register and empties it, placing the money from the register in front of the window too, I presume in possibly a bag like I stated previously. She then backs up and seats herself against the syrup bar and watches the man. After a moment with Samantha basically sitting there in horror, she turns around and slides back towards the window, puts on a possible jacket and places her arms behind her. At the five minute, 19 second mark, you can see the man leans halfway in through the window and appears to possibly restrain her. At six minutes and 41 seconds, you can see a group of people walk to their car on channel three just in the upper left corner of that screen. They get in and idle for a bit with people getting in and out of the vehicle, possibly wondering what's happening at the kiosk or kind of making time to see if like something's going down over there before eventually taking off at seven minutes and 41 seconds. At this point too, as the car's driving off, this man hops in through the window and begins to look around the store, stepping around Samantha as he does. He then appears to sit down next to Samantha, possibly talking to her or draping something over her. He then proceeds to hoist her from the ground to her feet, and they proceed to leave the kiosk. From the back door camera on channel four, you can see somebody look directly at the camera for a moment after the door opens and starts to close. However, due to the exposure, it's hard to see like too much like detail, so I presume that it is Samantha looking at the camera, however, it might not be. They quickly disappear off this camera and a few moments later, they reappear on channel three in that right area of it and they start walking back towards where this man came from. This man is walking with an arm wrapped around Samantha and very calmly, might I add. Then at 10 minutes and 30 seconds, it looks as though someone might have took off running at the top portion of channel three towards the busy road on the right, but that's kind of where the detail in this footage ends. Like there's not much going on outside of that. I didn't notice the gun, which is interesting because I noticed her put her hands up and she, I did definitely tell she was in distress at mm -hmm. that point. But that's when I got confused because that was before I realized there was somebody on the other side of the window and I didn't even see the gun at all. And I saw her run and turn the lights off. And then that's when I was really confused because I saw her messing with the cash register. And so I was just kind of like, okay, I don't know why she turned the lights off. But now it just seems like she's counting the money out or something. But yeah, then she, when she went and sat down, I just completely lost track of her. It was like, where did she go? <laughs> and that uh, was the point where I think I really focused in on the window. It was like, that doesn't look right. There's something mm -hmm. moving in the window from the outside. And that's when I really started freaking out. <laughs> But yeah, I can't believe I didn't notice the gun though, because I noticed her freaking out and I was just like, what is she doing? And I was thinking, this is the point where somebody's gonna rush in or something big's gonna happen. And I didn't even realize there was somebody on the other side of the window because of how bad the footage was. And so I was just confused. But yeah, looking back now with your like walkthrough, I do see the, the gun 
and all the uh, other details. Um, but yeah, it's still highly disturbing for sure. Mm-hmm. There is a couple of times in there that like I didn't fully mention, but he does peek in pretty regularly. And like when the car is going by, they both seem really like still and calm while this group was walking behind them. So it's unclear if like maybe this individual got nervous about that. However, he wasn't nervous enough to avoid just going through the window when the car yeah. decided to speed away. And, like, you could see the car, actually, in Channel 4, I think, the back door camera. Like, you could see it go off to the side and, like, almost like it's heading towards the road. And it's like, there's no way that that car couldn't have seen something going on like that. Unless the people were absolutely oblivious, which is... A very likely possibility, unfortunately. Yeah. But. Yeah, definitely makes me wonder, yeah, are they completely oblivious because it's late at night and maybe they've been drinking a little too much and are just too caught up in what they're doing, you know? Mm -hmm. But it seems like they should have noticed something was wrong, which makes me wonder, was it one of those situations where they were just like, wrong time, wrong place, like, we don't want to be around if shit goes down basically and that's why they sped off but then it's like well then shouldn't you have at least called 911 and been like I didn't feel safe to stay in the area but there's something happening you know it if it's true that somebody witnessed this and then just drove away and didn't report anything at all that's super shitty yeah and also there's no audio to this video so you don't know if something was said like hey I locked that's myself true. out of the kiosk I'm just trying to get back in if that's anything like yeah. that's going on too, because there's no sound. Yeah. You can't really like put in that narrative of what's being said in this place. You have to make inferences based off actions that are going on in the building. So with that being said, Payne didn't really know what to make of this video either. And he again offered his help to doll who once again declined Detective Jeff Bell was also added to the investigation team. At this point, he had 16 years of experience and was also puzzled by what he had just seen in that video. One thing was for sure, the departments had a working theory on this case from the video with how calm Samantha was and the friendliness towards the individual as they were walking away with his arm wrapped around her. They did not believe that she was a victim and that they did not plan to go public with her disappearance. I don't know. Did they not see the gun? <laughs> it might have been, like, a little bit in there, and they might have been like, that's weird, but the, like, familiarity that seemed like the two shared with the conversing, the calmness in the whole environment, it might have thrown people really hard. Yeah, because at the end, granted, like you said multiple times before, the video's poor, it almost looked to me like he was leading her, like, by the hair. Like, he grabbed her hair. You know how you can kind of grab somebody by the hair and kind mm -hmm. of force them whatever way you want them to go and intimidate them? That's what it looked like to me, is he more had her by the hair and was just kind of, like, you know, making it... Because I feel like at a distance, then you can make it look like maybe you have your arm around a person when really you're intimidating them and forcing them to go where you want them to go and you're able to guide which way they're going that way. So that's how I perceived it, but because the video footage isn't great, it was difficult to tell 
if he was holding her by the hair or if his arm was just around her. Yeah, and Payne had a lot of questions regarding that, too. And he even notes that he was worried that this case was going to become yet another high-risk teenager case that's just being basically swept under the rug because of her troubled past. Yeah, when you mentioned at the top that she had a history of maybe illicit drug use, that immediately was a red flag for me that her case might not get as much attention as it should. Because they could just think, oh, well, she's just a troubled youth getting into trouble again and whatever and Mm -hmm. just kind of brush it off. And also, just as a reminder, illicit drug use at this time also counts marijuana. I mean, marijuana is still a federally legal drug and considered a Schedule One substance. However, this is 2012, and it's not as highly looked upon as it is today, and there's not legalization in states. So. Yeah, that's a good point to make. With that being said, Samantha's father, James Sonny Cohen, he was also known as Sonny, was standing outside of the coffee kiosk waiting for his daughter to begin her shift the following day from 1 p.m. to 8 p.m. He had been up the previous night with worry, repeatedly calling her phone, and this was his final hope that she'd show up for work, but she didn't. Now, James had some questionable past choices, and there were rumors of him being involved in some drug circles around Alaska and other crime circles. Like I said, these are rumors as far as I am aware of. However, there might be truth behind them. James definitely had different plans for his daughter after seeing the way that the APD, Anchorage Police Department, handled the case and immediately started advocating for his missing child. It had been 48 hours since Samantha's disappearance and James took to the streets rallying Anchorage citizens with flyers boldly titled with red ink, Kidnapped, and his daughter's photo placed under it. James was also described as frantic and willing to talk to anyone about Samantha's case. He even went as far as making a Facebook page in hopes that someone would give him information about his missing baby girl. Well, good for him, I have to say. (laughs) Just because the police did a shitty job on this one and, and thought it was a teenage runaway situation, good for him to step up and realize that something was wrong and and speak up about it and not just let it fall to the wayside. Yeah, absolutely. And I see this a lot with like missing persons cases where it's people just wanting to get information out about their person's case and they're flocking to the community and the community is just flocking back to them. And that's exactly what's happening here. And the community did not disappoint. They were taking flyers, volunteering their own time, and even providing a shoulder to cry on when James needed it. That's good to hear. With all of this stirring, reporters eventually made their way to the scene to get more information about what was happening. James told them about Samantha's case and that he had been calling Samantha's phone until the battery eventually died at noon the day before. He also noted how the two of them talked regularly throughout the day, either by phone call or text. For her, this was not something she'd do. She always had contact with her dad. It wasn't like Samantha. Come Saturday, the Anchorage Police Department had to play catch up with finding Samantha. With the growing anger of the Anchorage community now breathing down their necks. 
Press conferences were held on Samantha's case and under public pressure for answers behind the mysterious disappearance, they released part of the surveillance video at Common Grounds kiosk. All that could be said of the suspect in the video was that he was tall in comparison to Samantha who stood at five feet, five inches high. This left many individuals in the range of possible suspects and it included James and Duane. Dahl interrogated both James and Duane separately. In her notes regarding James, she made the comment that he was a straightforward and brutally honest man. Dahl was also perplexed by the information the two had given her though. Duane, Samantha's boyfriend, told Dahl about how he'd gone to pick up Samantha from the coffee kiosk around 8.30 p.m. the night she disappeared. He had been running late from his own job and was only presumably 10 minutes behind when he would usually go and pick her up. When he arrived at the kiosk, it was dark and empty. Out of fear that the security system was active, he refrained from trying to go inside. Dahl made the comment regarding the two's relationship and how it had seemed to be on the rocks upon going through text messages. Duane didn't deny this, and he was very open about how he had been flirting with other women and Samantha obviously didn't like it. He'd also mentioned how he tried calling her earlier in the evening, she disappeared. However, she said that she was at work and she couldn't talk right now, and he responded with whatever and hung up annoyed. A text came in later that evening around 11.30 p.m. from Samantha to him saying, F you asshole, I know what you did, and I'm going to spend a couple of days with friends. Need time to think, plan, acting weird, let my dad know. Dahl pried at this message for a while, just wondering what Duane did or if he had anything to do with her disappearance. But Duane insists that he had nothing to do with her disappearance and went home to James and waited for Samantha, hoping that she'd come home that evening, but she never did. So that second text message to the FU message, was that sent after she went missing or before... That was at 11.30 p.m. on the night she went missing. Okay. So it's after she's been missing or has presumably been abducted. I guess I can see with that, maybe I could see that's a little bit more pointing towards potential teenage runaway situation. If they believe that text came from her at the time and they're thinking, oh, she's upset about this boyfriend situation... And so she's, like, running off with friends to wherever, some cabin in the woods or whatever, you know. Um, I guess I can see that maybe also pointing kind of more towards the teenage runaway scenario, but yeah. But yeah, it definitely, it pointed towards possibly it was, she was upset, she ran away. So I do see where the police department's coming from on this, too. Does that mean that it should be lowly prioritized? No. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't think because you think it's a teenage runaway situation, that means, you know, just ignore it and assume she'll come back. Because that doesn't mean even in the if it was a teenage runaway situation, that still doesn't mean, you know, there isn't hazards to her safety, especially. Did you say what month this was? Is this like winter in Alaska? Because I mean, there's snow. Yeah, it's that's one winter in Alaska. It's February. uh, Yeah, that's deadly. To be honest. teenagers can do some stupid things and so i mean even if we look at this as potential runaway teenager 
where's she gonna go? You know, hopefully she's got a friend's couch to crash on or something. But what if that's not the case? You know, you potentially have a teenager running out in poor weather conditions that could lead to hypothermia. Or you have perhaps higher risk of her ending up getting trafficked because she's out um, not in a safe place. So I still feel like even if it is a teenage runaway situation and not a kidnapping, that still doesn't mean this isn't a big safety hazard to the to the minor involved. Absolutely. And even after Dahl pried about this message, Duane then went on to tell Dahl that there was, for some reason, at 3 a.m., he had a weird sensation that he needed to go open the front door. And when he did, he noticed a man going through Samantha and his truck. The two stared at each other for a minute before the man closed the door and walked away down the street. That's really weird. Yeah. Duane relayed to James what he had seen. And about an hour later, Duane came out and searched his vehicle. Samantha's ID was gone. Ugh. I don't like that. So he didn't report this to police? I mean, I guess it's three in the morning. Maybe he didn't want to deal with calling the police at three in the morning. But still, I feel like that's something I would have reported to the police if it was me. But I guess I'm also a paranoid bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Um... (laughs) Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. That would have been something that I would have reported to police too, which a lot of theories point at maybe they didn't want to call police because of James's history with crime Mm. in the area. Also, Anchorage is the highest crime-ridden city in Alaska. So it might have been just something kind of normal that's like, oh, somebody broke into the car. I'll check it here in a moment. I'm not entirely sure what was going on there for me and living in an area that's not super crime ridden. If I saw somebody going through my vehicle, like at three in the morning, I'd be like, what you doing? And then I'd be like, I'm locking the door and calling the cops. Like, I don't know who you are. Stranger danger. (laughs) Exactly. Especially if they're staring at me too. Like if they're just like looking at me with the door open just staring me down, I'd be like, I don't know how to handle this. I don't think having the door open is a good idea anymore. Yeah, because that was something I thought about, too, is I feel like if this was a petty theft situation, generally speaking, again, I don't have criminal justice background, so who knows, but <laughs> from what I know about petty theft, I would imagine, generally speaking, it's a situation of if they're spotted, it's like, oh, shit, I better run kind of situation because you're like, I'm just looking for a quick buck or for, I don't know, whatever they think's in the truck. Money, drugs, I don't know what they're after. But petty theft, I usually just think, you know, it's a break-in, grab what you want, leave. And so the fact that this guy just stops and stares, like I said, that's really unnerving for one. And two, if I'm the person standing in my house, like, looking at the person going through my car and they just stop and stare at me then my thoughts would be like, okay, what is he contemplating right now? (laughs) He's not like, oh shit, I better run because I have a witness. It's like, he's just staring at me. So what do you think about what what you think about doing there? Like that would really be an extra red flag to me. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I have to agree with you. I'd be like, I, I don't know if I'm comfortable with the fact that you're staring me down while you're robbing me. That that has so many red flags to it. I just go back inside and close the door. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So this interview, kind of like 
us left dull with more questions than answers. And now a growing suspicion of both Duan and James as information seemed to fail to line up. By the evening, Dahl had actually sent two officers to the residence to see how they would react to a drop-in visit. According to officers, James wedged himself through the door and closed it behind them, like him to talk to them. Um, then officers asked to talk to Duan. James entered the house the same way he'd exited and do and basically mimicked the same entrance and exit style. Curious and suspicion now growing, Dahl placed Bell on James for survey and to basically monitor him around the clock. Days went by and there was no movement in the case. By the following Saturday, February 11th, a candlelight vigil was held for Samantha. Hundreds of people turned out for it, including press. Nancy Grace, ABC, NBC, CNN, and Fox News all aired coverage on her case. Samantha's father continued advocating for her and started to put together reward money for any information. Facebook messages poured in to Samantha's page with some ranging as far as New Zealand. Wow, this is far reaching. Yeah, like that's not something that we, it's not out of the question to say that like, we hear about people being reported from different countries, but I feel like New Zealand's pretty out there. Like, it's a small enough country that it's like, wow, all right, that's, that's a reach. Yeah. But Payne, during this time, contacted many travel networks to see if she'd left the state or the country, but there was nothing. Additionally, her phone had not pinged again since the night of her disappearance. Ugh. Nearly two weeks later, on February 24th, at 7.56 p.m., Duan got the shock of a lifetime when a text came in to his phone from Samantha's number. Connor Park, sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she purdy? That's bizarre. I don't like that. <laughs> Ugh. Don't like that at all. Yeah. Duan and James quickly shared the message with the Anchorage Police Department, and they were off to Connor Park in a flash. Under the poster of a missing dog named Albert was a Ziploc bag containing a ransom note and Polaroid photos of Samantha. Now, I say photos because the American Predator book does describe two distinctly different photos. However, the one that I found is the one that you'll find typically if you go out and look for it. And Re, I'm sending this to you now. Okay. It's not really a great photo either. <laughs> no, no. The quality of everything sucks. <laughs> it's 2012. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess if I knew her well, maybe I'd recognize it as her. Let me go back to the video of her so I can see her face again. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. I mean, the video isn't a great, like, forward shot of her. But I can see a resemblance. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you're super close to her, you could probably recognize it's her. But yeah, the, the photo's just not that great. But yeah, if you're really close to her, I would imagine then you could tell it's her. Yeah, so for those of you who are unable to look at this photo right now, it will be on our page. It's actually under the All That's Interesting source. So in this photo, Samantha can be seen to the left 
her eyes are wide and she kind of looks like she might have bruising around her face a little bit. And then to the right is a Anchorage Daily News column and a possible thumb of an individual holding the end of the column in the lower right corner of that screen. With this information and the ransom note, that demanded $30,000 be deposited into Duane's bank account, making mention of the ATM card Samantha had with her when she'd gone missing. There was a note stating, I may not use the card much in a K due to small pop, but I'm leaving soon, so I will be using it all over. This case was now officially a kidnapping, a federal crime, meaning that the FBI, specifically Payne, had jurisdiction over this case now. A task force was formed consisting of Jolene Godin, who had years of experience with crimes against children, human trafficking, sex trafficking, homicide, and working against rapists as well as serial killers. Kat Nelson was a younger investigator who, by all accounts, was the person who would become electrified by the work that bored others. She sifted through digital footprints, credit card transactions, phone records, and other realms of data and structure to form narratives. So she's, she's the person that would do the job that I absolutely cannot. <laughs> <laughs> Some people just really love data. Yep, I'm like, good on her. I'm like, I'm definitely one of the people that that bores me. (laughs) (laughs) I do like research, though. The next step was deciding on depositing the ransom into the account. It was no secret that James had been gathering and broadcasting the reward money. However, he was hesitant to deposit the sum, which made people grow in suspicion against his motives. It was February 29th when James contacted the Anchorage Police Department, informing investigators that he was going to deposit the amount that they had agreed upon, $5,000 into Duane's bank account. Enough to withdraw from, but low enough to aggravate the person and try to make contact again if they needed more or wanted more. Okay, that's what I was wondering, is like, what did the police recommend in that situation like did they recommend handing over the 30 grand or what was their suggestion to proceed because i would be hesitant too to hand over 30 grand just to see it disappear and then never see my daughter again (laughs) Mm -hmm. and like we've discussed cases where that happens where people hand over money to a ransom individual and then they just never see their loved one again. So yeah, so the, I definitely would be hesitant too. So I don't think that reflects on him being a suspicious character so much as like if I give them what I want, are they gonna act in return or are they just gonna take advantage of the situation and be like, great, I got what I want and I'm still taking her with me? Mm-hmm. You know, like they once they get what they want, there's nothing, no reason for them to give her back at that point. No, I absolutely have to agree with that because it's just, it's, it's a risk and you really got to think on it. So mm-hmm. Detective Joseph Barth was tasked with monitoring the card for any activity. 
He had actually noticed that Samantha's card had pinged the night of her disappearance. However, there was less than $5 in the account, so nothing was withdrawn. The next ping came in real time for Barth, around four hours after James had deposited the sum into the account. The card was used to make a withdrawal at an Anchorage bank for $600. This was declined, though, due to the daily limit being set at $500 for withdrawals. This was definitely suspicious to investigators, and it seemed like there was too much coincidence with the date and all the people that knew this plan was in place. The only people outside of the investigators who knew about the bank deal were Duane and James. Two hours later came a second ping, just six minutes from the first bank, and this time the withdrawal was successful with $500 being taken out of the account. Then, just before midnight, came a set of back-to-back withdrawal attempts. Then, a half hour later, a successful withdrawal of another $500. Investigators began to note how this individual is a fast learner. Grabbing cash at the midnight line would allow this individual to grab upwards to $1,000, if done correctly, in less than an hour. And how this location had some distinct difference from the last one and this individual was at a Denali credit union. Unfortunately for the suspect, this credit union had a working ATM camera. However, it took days to get the surveillance footage from the bank. When the surveillance footage came back, it was given to Chris Iber, a specialist in video analysis at the FBI. He noted that despite the man wearing baggy clothing, he was athletically built, He wore a dark hoodie with a paint stain on the left chest area, and on the back were the letters C-O-R-P-S. This led Payne to theorize that maybe the individual had been a member of the Marines at some point, or maybe he still was. The only thought that pops into my head is I would hope you can just pick up, like, a Marine sweatshirt at a thrift store, but that's the only thing that popped in my head, too, is I, I've had this random, like, conversation with somebody before about, like, you'll find old university t-shirts and stuff at the thrift store, so I, mm-hmm. it just made me think, like, was he, or did he just have a really good find at the thrift store that was conveniently misleading? <laughs> yeah, or even, like, when I was reading through this and, like, picking out stuff, I made the note that... I have military shirts because I have family that was in the military or friends that would give me stuff. That's a good point, too, yeah. So it's like, Mm -hmm. this guy might not even be in the military. He might just know somebody that is, and they're giving him merch. Yep, for sure. So, in addition to this, this man is wearing a light-colored set of eyeglasses, not sunglasses, eyeglasses, a gray face mask, dark pants, and a light or white colored pair of shoes. Investigators were now also in possession of the Home Depot security video, which they hoped to give them more information regarding what happened prior to Samantha being taken and when the two walked off camera. So to set up kind of where this kiosk is at, it's like across the street from a Home Depot parking lot. And then there's also an IHOP too. Now where those are positioned directly at, I'm not sure because I didn't get to see this video. It's not available to the public. So sad day for my little analyst brain because I definitely 
did have <laughs> a little bit of a forensic moment with the first one. But from what I read, when they walk out of the frame from the kiosk surveillance video, the two can be seen crossing the street. While the light is changing, Samantha did break away from the man, and it was very clear now that her hands had been tied as she ran in a complete panic away from her attacker. The man then proceeds to tackle her to the ground and stand her back upright, then continue walking towards a white truck. He waits a moment before placing her into the vehicle as a few people mosey about the parking lot and start to get into their vehicle. To which I shared the same thought as pain when I first read this is don't let him take you to a second location. Scream, do something. And I cannot stress that enough in self-defense and just in life-saving techniques. Dear God, do not let somebody take you to a second location. Scream, do whatever you can to keep yourself where you're at. Ugh, yeah, definitely. After this group dissipated, the man then proceeds to place Samantha into the front passenger seat of his truck. He then closes the door and calmly walks over and gets in on his driver's side and drives away. I did want to make the note that this video was received the same day as the ransom note. However, it's unclear in the American Predator book that I was reading if it was viewed that same day by anyone or if it was kind of held off and like pushed to the side amidst the commotion of the ransom note and getting things set up to roll there. However, it is noted that Payne in particular like felt embarrassed that it took so long for them to actually look at this video, let alone even get it. At 10.30 p.m. on March 7th, the ATM card pinged again. However, it was now in an unexpected location, the lower 48 states. In fact, it was a $400 withdrawal in Wilcox, Arizona, just off of the I-10 corridor. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. A little close to home. The next withdrawal was in Lordsburg, New Mexico, just an hour's drive from Wilcox. It was now apparent that this individual was heading east on I-10. However, whoever this was had made the mistake of trying to withdraw more than the daily amount again, presumably getting confused with the time differences since it was currently 11.34 p.m. the day before in Alaska, while in New Mexico, it was currently 2.34 a.m., and the bank account ran on Alaska time. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That is confusing. <laughs> mm -hmm. It gets a little confusing. It's like, oh, God, how do you even keep up with that? The card then pinged a minute later with a balance inquiry. $3,598.81 was still in the account. Another minute passed by, and there was a ping for an $80 withdrawal, just barely grazing the daily limit. With this information now available, with some idea of what their suspect might be wearing in the car that he was driving from surveillance on the ATMs, Payne put out a Be on the Lookout bulletin, sending it to law enforcement in New Mexico, California, Arizona, and Texas. On March 12th, Stephen Rayburn, a Texas Ranger, received a Be on the Lookout bulletin. It read, REF, kidnapping suspect, Cohen Samantha. Suspect will be an unknown male, last seen wearing a light-colored hooded sweatshirt. Suspect vehicle will be newer, 
lighter colored passenger car based on ATM transactions, it's believed that the suspect is traveling east towards El Paso. By 10.58 a.m. that morning, Rayburn became the lead on this case, and the card had pinged once again in Humble and Shepard, Texas. Rayburn called the FBI office trying to get any more information put together regarding a more thorough bulletin for his rangers to watch for. Chris Iber had done most of the work on the surveillance video and using methods of ratio sizing to known objects around the perimeter of the video. So street signs next to cars, things that are definitely more of your standardized, it's going to be the size. He pinned the car as being a white Ford Focus, which I'm like, props to you. I don't like math, so that's not happening. <laughs> like I said, this is a side of forensics that I would absolutely just fail at. And there are people that are amazing, like Iber, that just excel beyond expectations. So... With this information and a little bit more, Raber sent out a detailed bulletin with a photo of a white Ford Focus attached to it. So his bulletin read, on February 1st of 2012, at approximately 2 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, the victim was kidnapped in the state of Alaska at her place of employment. Her family and boyfriend have since been cleared as suspects. On March 7th of 2012, a debit card in the name of the victim's boyfriend, Duan, and I recanted his last name because I'm not entirely sure if he wants to be known by it, so it's just Duan, was used at an ATM in Wilcox, Arizona. The card was again used in Lordsburg, New Mexico at approximately 11.30 a.m. The card was last used in Shepherd, Texas on March 12th, 2012, at approximately 2.47 a.m. Shepard is located on US 59. Officers are asked to check rest areas, truck stops, and motels. Officers are asked to be on the lookout for the vehicle with an occupant matching the suspect or vehicle description. Suspect should be in possession of redacted stolen ATM card. In the good spirit of Crime Junkie, and the first time I ever heard this case, to quote Miss Ashley Flowers, the queen of crime, thank God to the ranger who showed up to work that day. Corporal Brian Henry, <laughs> Corporal Brian Henry, a Texas Highway Patrolman, was about to go on his lunch break when he noticed a white Ford Focus parked off of US 59 at a Quality Inn. He decided to wait around until Rayburn could arrive at the scene with the FBI agent in tow. The FBI agent was Deb Ganaway. Upon arriving, Rayburn and Ganaway examined the car, noting the barcode number on the back rear window. It was a rental. In the rear seat were clothing items of a little girl, and it was parked in front of room 115 in the upstairs room 215. Rayburn ordered eyes on the vehicle and those two doors in particular. Then at 11.30, an adult white male exited 2.15, removing items from the room and placing them into the white Ford Focus. 
Rayburn told Henry to set up on US 59 and that he needed a reason to pull that car over. Find any reason. <laughs> Henry set up in the central median so he'd have a perfect unobscured view of the quality inn and followed the Ford Focus as it pulled out of the parking lot, making its way down the road. Stopping at a traffic light, there was still no reason that this individual could be pulled over yet. He'd done nothing wrong. However, when the light turned green, the car accelerated to 57 miles per hour, which was two miles an hour over the speed limit. Henry switched on his lights and the driver calmly pulled over. Walking over to the car, Henry noticed a man in his mid-30s wearing a black pair of wraparound sunglasses. Texas Highway Patrol, where are you from? Henry asked. Alaska, the man responded. In 22 years of working, Henry had never pulled over an Alaskan in Texas. <laughs> he asked the man for his license and to step out of the vehicle. To which the man calmly obliged, getting out of his vehicle and handing over his ID. The ID had the Alaskan information of Israel Keys, born January 7th, 1978. And that's where we're going to stop for today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like it either. I wouldn't want to be that cop if I can just say that. <laughs> like, I wouldn't want to be the cop that's like, so this is possibly a kidnapper. Pull him over for a traffic stop. It's like, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I mean, there's some vindication in being the officer that takes down somebody that took a kid. Like, there's... There's got to be some way that you actually feel good about stopping somebody like that. Yeah. Personally, I would I would definitely be the one that would be like, yeah, I want to I want to bring his fucking ass in. Oh yeah, like I definitely would want to bring him in. I was just thinking like, man, you better have backup around the corner cuz if that dude like gets a whiff that you're onto him, like who knows what he's going to fucking do. Mhm. Yeah. But anyway, how do you feel about our introduction to Israel Keys, Ray? I don't know how I feel about him. I mean, I obviously strongly hate any person who's going to kidnap a person, especially a minor, to begin with. But then the, the whole video situation with the crawling through the window definitely set me off. I don't like that it's why not just come through the fucking door and i know why not because like through the window he could act semi-normal and pretend he's a customer and you know get whereas if he, he went for the door it would have been more obvious something was wrong because customers don't just walk through the door but mm -hmm. still it just added that extra creep factor which i really hate <laughs> don't like it at all and just the fact that like there was people around when this was happening, like we were discussing, and it was not called in. Though, like you said, you made the good point that, you know, he could have come up with some seemingly reasonable excuse, like you were saying, like you got locked out or something, where people might just kind of be like, oh, okay, and just kind of drive off. But still, it's just like, I feel like 
there was multiple opportunities where this could have gone a different way with the people who could have potentially witnessed something, you know, reporting suspicious activity to the cops. I really wish Samantha, um, like you said, had, you know, screamed, kicked, done whatever she had to do to bring attention to that something was wrong when they were in that parking lot and he was trying to get her into his vehicle since, uh, if I remember correctly, you were saying that there was people around and so potentially she could have caused a scene. And I think that's really like something that really needs to be like a public announcement kind of situation for self-defense of understanding, you know, even if this person who's trying to kidnap you is threatening, like, if you do anything, you know, I'll shoot you or whatever, you know, don't scream, don't make a scene or else you're going to regret your decisions. At the end of the day, like you were saying, it's, you stand a better chance making a scene and trying to get help in that moment than being taken from that location to somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Do not let somebody take you to a secondary location because the chance of finding you then dwindles so much more. Do not let anyone take you to a secondary location. You kick, you scream, you fight, you try to get out of that situation that you're going to be taken. Make it difficult for them. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, so I guess that's the main thing that jumps out at me is that the first event where he kidnapped her, it seems like there was a couple points there where things could have gone a different direction, which is frustrating that this happened and it could have possibly prevented but I mean hindsight's always twenty twenty, and in all these situations you know in the heat of the moment especially if you don't have any training in self-defense especially being that young I mean you can't really blame mm-hmm. her for not knowing what to do in the heat of the moment not knowing what to do in that situation just oh, trying absolutely. to stay alive definitely can't blame her at all so I, yeah I definitely agree with Katie that self-defense is such an important skill for everyone but especially young people and especially young women mm-hmm. uh, so if you have a young person in the house I definitely think it's important to teach them some sort of self-defense even if it's just very basic self-defense just even the basics of just how do you stay safe in a dangerous situation but especially young women and I mean I'm not necessarily saying like little little, little kids of course like you always have your safety talk with kids of all ages but I mean especially if you're thinking of like a teenage young woman I think that's an age where it's appropriate to maybe look into uh, more mature self-defense kind of classes, you know? Yeah. To try to give you any sort of skills that, heaven forbid, something like this happens, they know what to do to try to make it out, to try to survive, to not get in a situation. But again, like, when I'm saying these things, I'm by no means trying to victim blame here. I don't blame Samantha for what happened. It's not her fault at all. That's not what I'm trying to say. No, that's absolutely not what's going on here. And, like, these yeah. are good discussions to have even within the family, too. Just making sure that, like, you have mm-hmm. plans set up that in the instance of, let's say, a home intrusion happens, what is your kid's plan to do? What are you doing? You need to let your kids know that, like, if I get hurt, don't come back for me. You get yourself to safety. Like, ultimately, like, yep. the kid's main goal should be get to safety, call 911. Exactly, yep. It's setting up these plans and having these conversations so you know what type of instance you need to, like, 
in what type of instance what you need to do. And it's mm -hmm. by no means victim blaming. A lot of individuals out there, like you don't presume that you're going to be put in this scenario until you are. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of our media nowadays just doesn't point towards like preparing yourself to be in that scenario. So, like I said, in no way victim blaming. There's a lot that needs to go into self-defense and knowing when to start that is even a hard time. But however, if you can start it younger and start instilling that and getting those kind of layers of what is okay to happen versus this is weird, I'm in code red, I'm in full alarm bells going off and making sure that you've got those set up so it's not just jumping from zone white of being completely oblivious to a situation to all of a sudden you're in zone red and not knowing what the hell is happening exactly and i think that's the key is that any especially when we're discussing you know somebody who's raising a kid or a minor um you know keep it age appropriate we're not yeah no <laughs> take your young kids and do a deep dive into true crime like no keep it age appropriate but definitely i think at every age you know there's a there's a level, level that like is appropriate stranger danger. We don't take exactly, candy. You we know. don't get into vans. Yeah. We don't talk to people we don't know. <laughs> we don't open doors to people we don't know. And then you start escalating immediately yeah. once they start hitting those ages that it's like, oh, I'm on the internet all the time. Learn that there are people yeah. out there that are specifically just targeting you because you are a minor and learning those types of scenarios and what to do and how to handle it. And I think it's important to not try not to distill fear in kids. Cause of course you don't want to raise your child to be terrified of the world. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I think there's still value to be had in also preparing them to realize, like you said, you know, at least have enough street smarts to know when, okay, you know, something's off, something's yeah. not right here. Maybe I should be a little concerned so like you said, they're not completely oblivious and completely naive to the point where it can go from, oh, everything's okay to we're in a code red, very dangerous situation because they mm -hmm. just didn't see the red flags as they popped up. So yeah, I definitely think that's really important for sure. Really important discussion to have. And then on the other flip side too, like I said, things could have gone differently both in terms of if Samantha could have found a way to put up more of a fight, make a fuss, maybe more people would have taken notice and gotten her help or tried to help. But at the same time too, I'm also kind of like, at the beginning there, there was those pe folks getting in their vehicle when the dude was like, right before he climbed in the window. <laughs> mm -hmm. And again, I'm just like, you know, even if somebody was like, oh, I just forgot my keys, like, it's totally normal, whatever. I'm still just kind of like, you know what, at the end of the day, I'd rather be, and I don't know, this is, of course, dependent on the person, but I'd rather be a little overly suspicious than not suspicious enough. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's because of past experiences, but it's just kind of like, you know, I don't think it hurts to always just be like, call the non-emergency number and just be like, hey, might not be anything, but, you know, might this be weird something. Thing happened. There's some weird yeah, stuff going on it, over here. Because that's the thing is, call, you're not calling 911, you're just calling the non-emergency line. And it could just be a situation of, you know, hopefully somebody gets around to checking it out. And, you know, maybe they get around to checking it out and it's too late. She's already gone, he's already gone. 
But, you know, at least then there was a tip. So then if something does happen, like in this case, she gets kidnapped, they can go back and be like, oh, at this time, we got a phone call. There was some weird activity. We have a witness. Mm -hmm. Let's go talk to them. What did this person look like that you saw at the window? You know, maybe you can get some more information at that point. So I do think that comes into play, too, as a bystander, you know, don't always be afraid to be that or, or like you've talked about before you know just assuming oh somebody else will call it in i don't have to call it in somebody else will or or don't be afraid to call it in at all and just think like oh it's not a big deal or it's not my problem like i think in some of these situations if there's red flags popping up and you're looking at the situation and thinking something's not quite right it, something feels a little uncomfortable and maybe i'm not involved in the situation so it may not be like impairing my safety if I can get in the car and drive away from this. But, you know, maybe I should still call it non-emergency number and just be like, heads up, there's something a little funky going down. <laughs> like, I don't think that hurts. And if anything, it could really help in a situation like this. So Yeah, and most police departments aren't going to get mad at you for calling the non-emergency line. In fact, if you're calling the non-emergency line, that still leaves 911 dispatch open for more high priority calls. However, if your call seems to be something that's like urgently going on, they can immediately patch you through to 911 and dispatch and start getting things rolling and going because ultimately the person that's handling those calls at the police department should have some understanding of what's and okay that's odd we'll send some officers out in a little bit to oh my god something is happening there we need officers on scene now however i do digress a little bit because the average response time for officers anywhere from my knowledge is upwards to 12 minutes one of my big takeaways from at least the first part of this case, uh, circling back around to why I first mentioned this, <laughs> is uh, just, it, it frustrates me when it comes to true crime when looking back you see spots where it's like, we could have done something right here, and if something had been done right here, all these terrible things that followed maybe could have been prevented, but at the end of the day, you know, there's only... You can't blame people for these things, um, because... Like you said, it could have just been he had a very seemingly reasonable excuse and people just didn't think anything of it and went on their way and whatnot. And so it's just one of those situations where these things happen, unfortunately. And that's why criminals get away with what they do is they're unfortunately good at what they do a lot of the time. But yeah, that's well, some what of the really... Time. A lot of the time, it's, yeah. it's stupid criminals <laughs> doing stupid that's things. That's true. Yeah, they're not all good at what they do, for sure. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, that sticks with me. And then just how, like I said, again, just how disturbing that video was. So definitely, listeners, if you're, uh, I don't want to call it graphic because like it wasn't gory or anything, but it was definitely disturbing. So if you're a little bit more on the sensitive side, maybe don't watch the video. You know, use your own judgment of what you feel like you can, you're, you're up for depending on your mental state for the day. Like Katie's at the top of the episode, but that's probably another thing that's going to stick with me. That was just, that was some creepy shit right there. Very disturbing seeing mm -hmm. what happened and just how it went down. But yeah. Yeah. I think that's my long winded impressions. <laughs> 
Well, I hope you guys did enjoy the introduction to Mr. Israel Keys. We will return with this next week with part two and possibly the following week with part three. We'll see, we'll see how much I can squeeze into part two because I wasn't expecting this to be as long <laughs> as it was. I do, once again, have to give shout outs to the American Predator book. This is where I'm getting a lot of that information that you're not hearing in other podcasts or maybe even finding online. Um, Maureen Callahan did an absolutely wonderful job with writing this. And from what I did discover, it appears that she is a New York Post writer too. So make sure that if you haven't already, or if you really want more information on this case, head over to Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or anywhere you can get like mainstream books and buy American Predator, because there are things in here that I'm not talking about that really add more dimensions to this case. For sure. And definitely tune in next week. Katie will have plenty more information for us. Plenty more. Uh, too much. <laughs> too much information. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, heads up. Next week, we, we will be continuing with this case since obviously we're leaving you on a bit of cliffhanger. So again, just like with this episode, uh, hopefully come into it in a, a good mental place. Uh, and if you're not in that, that space you need to be to listen to this kind of material, feel free to give it a pause and come back later. We'll be here waiting for you. But thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you, Katie, for covering this topic. I, I'm definitely not a true crime junkie by any means, so that's probably why I've never heard of him before. But mm. I'm already horrified and on the edge of my seat wanting to know what happens next. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Just what Katie was hoping for. <laughs> exactly what I'm hoping for. Thank you again for listening to Haunting Cases Podcast. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Haunting Cases Podcast and on Twitter at Haunting Cases. If you have a listener tale, story request, or any questions, email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast from. So, what do you say, listeners? Are, Are you haunted, haunted too? too?